This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. You've no doubt heard of TED, you know, that big phenomenon, the huge conference that they run annually, or at least they did before a pandemic swept the world. Um, The TED videos, which you've seen, surely you've seen some of them, whether it's Brene Brown or Sir Ken Robinson or who knows how many others that you've seen. Maybe you're aware of the TEDx phenom, which is when different locations around the world run their own TED style conference. Maybe you've even seen my TEDx talker and how to tame your advice monster. And, you know, quite frankly, I hope you have. And if you haven't, step away from this podcast immediately and go watch my uh, my TEDx talk. But one of the things that you might not know about TED is they have a a practice where they nominate TED fellows. So this is where they really commit to this idea their, their ethos of ideas worth spreading. And they find people who have really great ideas, who are doing important, wonderful things in the world. And they say, how can we support you with this? How can we help make this work for you? And for many years, I was part of um, a process which actually focused on and supported these TED fellows. We would retreat for three or four days There'd be 10 selected TED fellows. There'd be a team, an army of coaches and facilitators and subject matter experts. And we'd do our best to work with them and accelerate whatever they were up to so that they would have better success. They'd have a more sustainable lifestyle because lots of TED fellows are working really hard, doing great work and almost killing themselves in the process. And on one of those retreats, I've done probably four or five, um, I had an opportunity working with a TED fellow who was doing amazing work. And I had, as part of that, had the opportunity to work with my friend and today's guest, Bill Carrier. And Bill is an executive coach. And in the work we did with this TED fellow, it really was, and even today, really felt some of the most profound coaching that I'd ever been part of. And, um, you know, he and I worked together working with this this. Uh, young person. And it really was profound. And I've got to know Bill better over the years. And he is a source of quiet, calm, dignity, and wisdom and clarity. So he is the perfect guest for us to talk about in the We Will Get Through This podcast. So I'm going to give you his uh, formal introduction. So here we go. He is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. He's a former army officer and a Rotary International Ambassador Scholar. He anchors his coaching work in extensive practical leadership experience and the firm belief that we are all part of something bigger than ourselves. He's a member, as am I, of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches for Top Leadership Professionals in the World. Now, Bill draws on his experience in his coaching for CEOs and senior leaders through uh, neuroscience, ontology, I'm not even sure what ontology is, uh, movement, psychology, semantics, and West Point leadership development. And his clients are varied. I mean, it's everything from CEOs and C-suite executives of sort of medium to large companies, um, Navy officers, TED fellows, and other senior executives from federal agencies. 
Bill's also not just a coach, but a, a, a he's one of the most giving people I know. It's one of the reasons I love him. Um, and he contributes to the coaching profession in many ways. He's the co-founder and co-editor of the Future of Coaching magazine and a founding fellow of the Institute of Coaching at the Harvard Medical School, amongst other things. So, Bill, it's so nice to have you here. Good to be here with you, Michael. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, one of the beliefs I have, and it's maybe wrong, but one of the beliefs I have around having a, a, a origin in West Point is a focus on character and the importance of character. And that's, that's inspiring, but I, I realize I don't even really know what character is. So I'm curious to know how you think about or how you define character. Thanks. Yeah, in fact, there's a, a great quote from General Norman Schwarzkopf, who would often say, that leadership is a potent combination of character and strategy. But if you must be without one, go without the strategy. Oh, interesting. And character is that set of values and strengths that you have that make you who you are distinctively. And when we talk about it in positive senses, sometimes we even use the word virtues. What are the positive moral strengths that you have? So are these things that are just kind of baked into you? I mean, do you just kind of get your your preset moral character, your moral virtues, and, you know, you can polish them up a little as you go through life, but it's hard to shift something as fundamental as that, or is it actually something that you can shape and develop? Character is definitely something that you can shape and develop. It's just like everything else or just about everything else in life. It's a muscle, and the more that you exercise it, the stronger it becomes. You can see, for example, character development in children or in your colleagues. You can watch them make hard choices or show grit or determination or generosity. Right. And you can see how it grows. When you're working with senior leaders who have typically you know, a track record of success, that's how they became a senior leader. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that there's part of them that goes, Bill, look, I don't need to work on my character. My character's fine. My character got me to where I am today. Why would I be working on that? And if you're coming with uh, the Schwarzkopf kind of insight, which is like, look, it's leadership is character plus strategy. And if you only pick one, pick character. How do you challenge and work with senior leaders to start thinking about character when they may be going, I'm not quite sure there's a reason to change? Yeah, well, most of the time when people come to me, they want to do work even better than they're doing it now. Right. They're extraordinary leaders with extraordinary backgrounds, just like you've mentioned. And so most of the time, they don't want to hear, don't do that. What they want to hear and what helps them is to know that they have these strengths and that they can build on them and that every strength with uh, actually has uh, a shadow side, mm. like a bodybuilder who can't scratch his or her own back because <laughs> of so much muscle. Right. And so the proposition in the kind of work I do is, is permanently elevated leadership capability comes from leveraging strength so that it becomes even greater and winnowing the shadow sides. Well, I, I'm always drawn to the conversation about the shadow side because it's it's just kind of messier and juicier and harder. <laughs> um, how take t- explain to me how you help people look into the shadows because that's you know 
we, most of us have spent a lifetime doing all we can not to look at our shadows. It's like, oh, look, my shadow is behind me, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, well, I think you want to do it gently, mm. but as directly as possible, which usually means somewhat obliquely. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, Bill. It's like gently and directly, which means obliquely. It's like we're getting there, which just you may not realize that we're getting there. That's really, really beautiful. Yeah. So usually, for example, you might talk with a CEO. I'm, I'm thinking about several in the past couple of years who are genuinely wonderful, generous human beings. And people follow them in, in great case because of that. Right. And that generosity also bleeds into the way that they provide discipline or direction or guidance. So sometimes they're more permissive and then is useful to their organizations. And so they need to understand first how much strength there is in what they're doing with generosity. Right. And then we can begin to look at, well, how that may actually contribute to some things that they don't want. So you can ask, well, what does it look like from your senior vice president of merchandising? Right. So you're inviting there in some ways the, the necessity of empathy, the necessity of, of being able to move to a different perspective and go, are you seeing your impact from this alternative perspective? Are there, are there sort of core characteristics that people need to be able to develop their character, to develop their strength? I mean, I'm, here's, this is me untangling this in my own brain bell, which is, I'm just going, do you need to help people embody and strengthen and work on their sense of empathy, which allow, then allows to, them to understand how they're seen by others, which then allows them to, in a more nuanced way, work on their strengths in a way that also integrates their shadow. Yeah, although I'll, I'll draw the distinction between empathy and perspective taking. Okay. Because you can find leaders who are extraordinarily intellectual and who are not really going to feel the way other people feel, mm -hmm. but they can recognize that their perspective, the thinking that they have about a particular action is different and therefore either aligned or not aligned with what the leader wants. Right. You know, one of the, one of the places we're in at the moment, Bill, is this sense of, you know, we're recording this part the way through a pandemic. We have no idea how long this pandemic is going on for. So we know yeah. we're, we're in it. We're not out of it yet. Um, I'm curious to know in part, you know, you, you have a military background, so you have some training around this. Um, how do you help people manage through a crisis? You know, are there any tools or kind of perspectives that you have found particularly useful to help orient in a time when everything feels topsy-turvy? <laughs> Yeah, it, it has been a heck of a time for virtually everyone. In fact, I remember when this first got started, uh, CEOs would actually call me into their executive crisis meetings to help them think about how do you do a distributed crisis meeting? How right. do you do a, a meeting at all under these kinds of environment conditions? Um, so there are a number of things that I would bring up. But I'll, in fact, I'll start with what I think is potentially the most important, which is taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I have even had this conversation before. We have, yeah. And the idea is you 
as a leader are the most important resource over which you have any real control in support of your mission and the people that are with you, whether they're your family, your business, or your nonprofit. And so if you don't take care of your capability, you are by definition harming the organization that you are a part of. Uh, would it be okay if I gave you an example from my own life? Yeah, you know, I'd love this, Bill, because I can I can already hear listeners listening to you say that and, and going, yeah, yeah, I get it. But, you know, move on because, you know, I'm whatever. <laughs> and, you know, part of part of what I love about you and your how you influence in your coaching is that you're you're gentle but persuasive. <laughs> so I'm really curious to know how you help people really get this and shift their behavior to a place of self-care. Thanks. You, you know, it's probably, holy cow, maybe 50 or 60 days ago now. Yep. Uh, just a week into when all of this had really kicked off nationally in the United States. And uh, Julie and I had spent a week of supporting clients with all of the crisis and emotions. And on Thursday, we were quarreling uh, we were feeling distracted and we were feeling a little bit off. Right. And we went, this isn't going to end soon. We've got to figure this out. So we got a good night's sleep. And the following day we said, Hey, first let's notice that this actually already affected our performance right. in our, our family, in our family organization. And it was at risk of, bleeding into our work with other people too because we were feeling distracted and, and for those that don't know julie's your wife yeah yeah julie's my wife she's the top speaker for young women in the united states yep and one of the top speakers for youth leaders in the country yeah she's absolutely a force <laughs> and, and part of why this is helpful to know is you know you look at the two of you and you're going oh two people who are very aware self-aware who are aware of relationships, who are aware of leadership and teach this stuff. So if you're bumping into this with your kind of foundational knowledges and practices, then everybody is. Yeah, and it snuck up on us, right? We yeah. didn't notice until we were already quarreling enough that it was much more than normal. And so we said, what we need to do is figure out what's going to help us stay at the highest level of performance for each other and for the people that we serve. And so we came up with priority lists, which we then literally posted on our refrigerator. Mm. And they have some similarities, but they're unique to us. So my list uh, is, one, put my faith in God. Right. Two, do the things that specifically help me recharge so that I am ready to perform for others. And that meant four things. One was get at least seven hours of sleep every third day. Two, Make sure I got a good workout in at least every other day. Three, do Bible study in the morning. Yep. And four, get in an hour of fiction reading every day. Julie's that. list is different. She's very extroverted. So one of hers, for example, was <clears throat> she would go on a daily bike ride, which she referred to as her extrovert's bike ride. <laughs> and she would say hello to everybody she could talk, she could see across the street. Right. And it sounds like a luxury to read for an hour a day, but it's not a luxury. It's actually one of the necessary conditions for me to maintain the highest level of performance for the people that need it on an enduring basis. And part of what and, I love about hearing this, Bill, is one of our earlier guests, Kate Lai, talked about 
needing to build your own resilience MO, your own resilience modus operandi. And she's like, the generics, the generic list of things to do to build resilience don't work because you're all different. And your story of you and Julia, perfect. Because, you know, for you, it's reading fiction. And I may miss Bay misunderstanding, which is like only sleeping seven hours every three days. <laughs> you may mean something different. I think you probably do. But it's your, your lists are very different because you are different in terms of just your psychology and your phys- physiology and your makeup. Yeah, we have we come from different places. We do different things. We spend uh, our energy in different ways, and we replenish it in different ways. And the better you know your own self. Mm-hmm the better you can actually serve others. Right. So how do you have that conversation with leaders who go, Bill, I've got a lifetime of self-sacrifice. It's part of my leadership style, which is I am super busy. I'm overcommitted. I'm on the edge of tiredness all the time. You tell me to self-care. and I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But how can I look after myself when, when Rome is burning? how do you in your oblique yet persuasive way persuade people to actually say, you know what, I need to do this for myself, but also for my team and for my organization? Yeah. Sometimes it's a hard conversation and some people are not ready to hear it. So it has to be organized as, as you all know, because you've had this conversation yourself with so many people, Mike. Yeah. So that it serves what someone is ready to hear. Right. So I'll, I'll give just a couple of very quick examples. One might be, I might just share my own story, mm-hmm. right? So that's me sharing my own experience. And because people know I went to West Point, I was an army officer. I've, I've had leadership positions before. Uh, I have some credibility. And so they'll listen. They're not always ready to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, a second way, um, uh, for example, in a recent conversation, I, I talked about what the army says you have to have in terms of sleep, that if you don't have at least four hours of sleep, you're not even combat capable because you're so cognitively compromised. Right. And then if you add the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, the research <laughs> says that people who are cognitively compromised can't even tell the difference between a bad solution and a better solution. Yeah, the, the blunt way I've heard that put is stupid people are too stupid to realize that they're stupid. <laughs> it's a little harsh, but it makes the point. It, yes. And the hard part here is if we don't take care of ourselves, we become the stupid people. Right. Hell, that we're doing a bad job. I love that because part of the irony of the, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is um, you always think you're like, yeah, I know people like that, but you never go, oh, there's a mirror here. <laughs> I might be <laughs> one of those people. I, I, the times where I'm stupid and I just don't even know it. Yeah. And leaders never want to be that person because right. the kind of people that engage coaches and the, and the kind of people who run organizations for the most part are doing so because they really have a deep mission, sense of mission and care for their people. Yeah. They don't want to serve them badly. They want to serve them well. Exactly. You know, man, the last thing I'll offer here, and there are so many different ways of saying this, but sometimes you need to offer up to people that sacrifice is done for purpose. Sacrifice that's done without purpose, just by habit, it's cruelty. Right. Wow. That, I mean, that's, <laughs> I kind of don't want to, I'm, I'm now, I'm speaking over the silence. I should, 
follow that because people need to hear that. You know, sacrifice without purpose is cruelty. It's really profound, Bill. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, to, to shift just slightly, one of the things um, we kind of connected around in terms of preparing for this conversation was this whole idea of VUCA. And, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot of VUCA at the moment because it's like, okay, we thought it was VUCA before. It's definitely VUCA now. Um, I'm wondering if you can just talk to us about what that is and your perspective, your take on that. Sure. So it's a, as we know, it's this acronym that has become much more highly used in business. It stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And it actually has its roots in the way the U.S. Army War College tried to describe the conflict environment after the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that what they were saying was in so many different places with so many different things going on, what we have to understand is that the environment is going to be volatile, by which they meant that the rate of change would change. Mm-hmm. It's like in a car and you have no effect on the accelerator. It just does whatever it wants. Right. Uh, and it's kind yeah. of like it's Harry Potter-esque, so it's random. <laughs> Faster, slower, okay. up, down. There's no pattern to what you're seeing or what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Like it, like the stock market appears to many people. Right. Uh, uncertain means that you can't actually tell what cause and effect relationships are anymore. Uh, and so it's a little bit like thinking, hey, here's a doorbell. When I ring it, sometimes the doorbell rings, sometimes the doorbell chimes, and occasionally it rains. Right. Then complexity is really the idea that everything's interconnected. Yeah. So it's not like a chessboard where you can move a single piece. It's like a spider web where anytime you tug on one piece, you're moving everything. Right. And that means you have to understand that it's all interconnected. And then lastly, Beyond all this, it's also ambiguous. And so you can't tell what something means very often. It's a little bit like looking at a stoplight in the sun. You know there's a signal there, but you can't tell if it's red, yellow, or green. Right. This is great. I'm like, what's the, so how do you help people get through this, Bill? Because, you know, as soon as you, when you lay it all out like this, I'm like, what's the point of planning anything? It's all chaos. Well, and chaos is something slightly different. You're right. You're right. And in fact, one of the one of the interviews as part of the series is with uh, Dave Snowden, who uh, is the creator of the Canavan system, which really d- does a beautiful job at articulating the difference between complexity and chaos and, and complication and the like. Um, but how how do you help your the the people you work with understand VUCA and navigate through it? Well, I'm going to say two things about yeah. this. And by the way, you know the most interesting people, Michael. <laughs> oh, I don't even know. Th- I know of them. And then I'm just shameless about reaching out to them going, Dave Snowden, you are a legend. I mean, his 2007 article on HBR is the kind of the definitive article on all of this. And it was a very intimidating conversation. <laughs> He's a very smart man. <laughs> well, you know, I, I will also offer up that a lot of people have that same conversation about you, <laughs> coaching habit or the advice trap, which um, – One of the things which is characteristic about you is that you offer gentle irreverence and deep wisdom. And that is a really difficult thing to balance. Oh, look, I appreciate that. Thank you. So if we think about VUCA and how do you deal with it, 
there, there's first that you, people need to learn how to deal with their own reactions to things that are volatile, yes. uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Um, so that's a whole set of conversations. And in the shortest of terms, I often say in a crisis, think about shifting the acronym so that instead of VUCA for the troubling crisis, start with V for values. What do you care about? What is right and wrong? What's your purpose? Mm. The clearer you are on those, the easier it will be for you during these moments that are so uncertain and move so fast to make decisions because those moments of decision are going to come and go quickly. And if you're not prepared, you won't be able to take advantage of them or um, to avoid potential problems. Which, which is a lovely connection back to the Schwarzkopf quote right at the start around, you know, character Character is about, um, or strategy is characters, uh, what am I, leadership is <laughs> character and strategy. And that's what you're saying here, which is, uh, you know what, you've you got to start with character. You've got to start with values. Exactly. What's the so, U stand for? And so U is understand as best you can the situation. Mm. No that much of it's amb- ambiguous, complex, and you can't draw it out into a really easy to understand cause and effect. So analysis paralysis will kill you here. You've got to know that you don't know what's going on and keep paying attention. So understand as best you can. I love that. And, you know, one of the other interviews in this series was with uh, our mutual friend, Tom Colditz, who also has a military background. And his guidance was understand the thing that's most likely to happen, understand the worst thing that's going to happen. And those are the two critical things to, you don't need to understand everything. You're just trying to figure out those two outcomes. And I thought that was really helpful. Yeah. And Tom, as, as you know, but we should say here for everyone else, is the acknowledged master of understanding crisis leadership in right. life-threatening situations. Yep. And a former Brigadier General. So he's, he's seen a bit. Uh, and once you've understood it as best you can with the, the scenario planning, then you make a choice. Right. And you've got to do it quickly because, again, everything is changing so that you can move to action. So that's know your values, understand the situation as best you can, make a choice and take action, and then keep doing this. You've got to keep sensing for how things are moving so you can adjust your action. One of the things that I've noticed, Bill, is if I was to pick one of the letters from that, the C, the make a choice, you know, we we talk about analysis paralysis, but there's also choice paralysis, which is I don't really like any of these choices. Neither of them is the easy, best, obvious choice. So I get frozen on having the courage to make the choice is there? do you have guidance around how to help people have the courage to take their best guess of what the right choice might be? Yeah. One of the things to remember, and I think you and I've even had this conversation before, Michael, is that not doing anything is a choice, right? The default is a choice. And so if you look at it that way, now you've got a better chance because the default of doing nothing very often has some pretty unpleasant consequences. Right. That's very interesting. <clears throat> it's about almost that kind of willingness to to um, 
weigh up the opportunity cost and there's an opportunity cost of not acting, not making a choice. And, um, but because we're in that, we're kind of, that's the default position. It's easy for us to pretend that those consequences won't happen or to ignore them. Um, and you're saying highlight those, it will give more momentum to actually making a better choice from some of the other options. If that's, if that's the, the right way to go. Yeah. If you have three colleges and you're not quite sure which one to go to, that, that's th- not three options. It's four. Because right. if you choose, you're not going to college. I'm going to ask you one more question because, I mean, honestly, we, we could keep talking forever as, as we've done in the past. <laughs> um, one of the phrases you used in, terms of, in our kind of prepping for this call was this whole idea of um, a Pyrrhic victory. And... I love this phrase. I love because Pyrrhic is just one of those words that nobody can spell. <laughs> so it fails every spell check ever. But t- tell us what a Pyrrhic victory is and why that's such a dangerous a dangerous target. Yeah, and in fact, I, I might even offset it with the idea of the Stockdale paradox. Mm. A, a Pyrrhic victory is when you win a battle, but you lose the war. Right. Uh, and it comes from the idea that maybe you, uh, from, I think it was actually Greece, yep. too many people were killed. And so the society itself of the city fell, even though they won the battle. Right. And, and so this happens a lot when we are operationally myopic, when we look only at what we're doing instead of the larger context. Mm. You can win an argument with somebody that you care about, and damage the relationship. Right. That's a victory. You know, that's great. It, it takes me back to the metaphor you shared about understanding that what we're in at the moment is a spider web. <laughs> and <laughs> you can, every time you tug on a, a part of it, it affects the whole. And if you damage too much of it, you've damaged all of it. Yeah. And so the idea is to pay attention to the fact that there is a whole spider web, that there's a bigger picture. Uh, and I think that would lead us to the Stockdale paradox in yeah. a certain way, if we have time for that. Yeah, we do. And so um, you know the story, but uh, just for folks who aren't familiar, Admiral James Stockdale was the highest ranking prisoner of war during Vietnam. And for seven years, he underwent regular torture and abuse at the hands of his captors, all while he was elevating the morale and discipline of his other soldiers who were in that same prison camp. Uh, he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for his incredible valor during that time period. And Jim Collins actually went to talk with him while he was writing the book, Good to Great. Right. Because it was such an interesting s- story to Jim. And he, he asked Admiral Stockdale how he managed to get through that seven years. And his, his answer was somewhat surprising. He said, I knew that no matter what was going on, I was going to make it through this. I would prevail in the end. And that in the end, I would make this one of the defining moments of my life, that it would work positively for me. And so that was surprising enough. But then Jim had actually asked him, well, who didn't make it out? Right. And his answer was even more flabbergasted. <laughs> Admiral Stockdale said, that's easy. The optimists didn't make it out. The people who thought that they'd be out by 
December yes. or Christmas. And then Christmas came and went. And then they said, oh, but we'll be out by Easter. And then Easter would come and go. Then they said we'd be out by Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving would come and go. And so would Christmas again. And they would die of a broken heart. And he followed it up with this piece, which is, he said, this is a very important lesson, Jim. You must never confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. That's brilliant, Bill. Yeah. So, Bill, this has been a wonderful conversation. There are going to be people who who want to reach out and connect with you um, because you know we've just got started and you, you're a bit of a hidden treasure. Not many people know about you. I'm lucky to have kind of secret access. Um, if people want to find you, where can, where might they connect with you? Um, right now, the best place is on LinkedIn. Right. Uh, and, you know, uh, I have long had a very senior level coaching practice, which has meant that I have been. Uh, a little bit off the radar on purpose. Right. Yeah, it's like I don't think you even have a website. And you're like, okay, that's very old school. But it's it, it's in some ways it's a, uh, it points to your success as a coach and word of mouth and that the people who need to know about you know you. So for all those people who are listening to you now, you have you have access, you now know about somebody that not many people know about and you're lucky because what a fantastic conversation. Bill, this has been wonderful. You're awesome. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you. Thank you, Michael. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free video-based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up, to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.